0: Good to see you, Amy. Just I was sitting back up, and I went, "There's an extra head over there." Good to see you. Acts chapter 17 this morning, folks. Some of you may or may not know that I spent time in radio. I was a disc jockey for a while, and then I moved into sales, where I was um, not only doing sales but writing and doing commercials. For a radio station in Wausau, Wisconsin. I've always been fascinated with marketing. In fact, last night we were watching something, I don't remember what it was, and this commercial came on for Maxwell Coffee, and it was the strangest, weirdest commercial I think I've ever seen. They kind of mocked or spoofed those infomercials. And I think the whole, I think it was like a two minute commercial. But um, Amy even made some comment, and I'm like, yeah, I'm still watching it because I'm just sucked into it because it was so strange and bizarre, and I thought it was a brilliant marketing piece because they were poking fun at all the ways you could use coffee. Like, you know, they would say, like, if you buy the Maxwell coffee, you also get the fertilizer for free and the hair, you know, because of all the things you could do with coffee grounds. And so I've always loved that. I've always been fascinated by marketing and, and that. But uh, one of the things I've always enjoyed as part of that is kind of looking at marketing blunder So I know we're not supposed to have fun at church today, but we're going to have a little bit of fun. I went and did a little bit of digging because there were some marketing blunders that had come to mind that I wanted to share with you. And uh, this, believe it or not, this will tie in. So give me a moment. Um, I want to just mention some of the what I call some of the greatest marketing blunders of our American history here because they're somewhat funny. Um, There was an American airline named Braniff, Braniff International, and it was known for their finely upholstered leather seats. And their slogan was fly in leather. And what you're going to see a theme here is that our English marketing doesn't always translate into other languages well or other cultures. And this is one of them here. So their marketing theme or their slogan for their airline was fly in leather. However, when it was translated into Spanish, somebody didn't really properly understand it because somehow they mistranslated it and it came out as fly naked and nobody caught it initially. Coors, the beer company, also had a problem with Spanish. Their slogan at one point was, turn it loose. Now, I don't know if Alfredo, if this would be the same thing, but apparently in some Spanish-speaking countries, that phrase, turn it loose, has to do with spending more time in the bathroom because of what you ate. <laughs> it didn't translate well. Clairol launched a curling iron called mist stick, apparently misting the hair too. Well, when they marketed that in Germany, they didn't realize that mist was... Does you do know what the word mist means in Germany? Maybe or maybe not. Apparently, at a time in history, it was slang for dung or manure. And the translation came out to dung stick or manure stick. <laughs> Didn't sell real well before somebody finally discovered that. Coca-Cola ran into a problem also in China at one point because they didn't realize that their brand name, Coca-Cola, sometimes was mistranslated into, and I don't understand this, <laughs> bite the big wax tadpole. How you would get that? Probably some intern that didn't know Chinese very well. You know? Kentucky Fried Chicken, there's another good one. Kentucky Fried Chicken had a problem in China because their slogan, finger looking good, was translated, mistranslated as eat your fingers off. <laughs> Imagine why people weren't all that interested in Kentucky Fried Chicken. I like this one. This is probably one of my favorite ones. And I remember this. In the late 1970s, a Scandinavian company, Electrolux. Anybody know what Electrolux made? Vacuums. And I remember this, actually. They they had this slogan they would use, and it was this. Nothing sucks like an Electrolux. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that makes sense, maybe from a Scandinavian perspective, but here, because of the word sucks and again I do remember that the last one I thought was kind of interesting you know how when you go to the grocery store and you go to pick up like the canned goods we don't buy a lot of canned stuff but I grew up with canned beans and you know corn and all that kind of stuff and there's always a picture on the label of what's inside the can the problem was that you know here we see green beans is what it says on it well in parts of Africa, especially places like Ethiopia back in the 70s and 80s, the illiteracy rate was so high, a lot of their food products, canned goods, didn't have the labels on them. They're just pictures. And that's how people knew what was inside them. Well, Gerber wasn't too, they didn't understand that real well, and so when they began to market their baby food in Africa, you remember what was on the Gerber baby food jars? Pictures of babies. And they found that people weren't buying Gerber baby food because All they saw was the picture of the baby on the jar. So, now why do I do that? Well, not just to have fun this morning, but one of the things I learned when I was in advertising was it wasn't just enough to know your product. That was the easy part. In order to market your product successfully, you have to understand your audience. You need to be able to get into your audience's head. You have to understand how they think. And all these marketing blunders were perfect examples on how here in America the slogans might have made perfect sense for the most part. But because we're trying to market in other countries and because people didn't understand those other countries and the cultures and the language and other things, they made a lot of mistakes. Things didn't always translate well. And so in order to communicate, we need to understand not just the product that we're selling, if you will, but also how our audience thinks. Again, how to kind of get into their head and understand and be able to present things in a way that they understand. And I had to do that with marketing. One of the things I loved about writing some of the commercials in that was not just knowing my product, but talking to the to the, um, the uh, business owner and figuring out how do his customers think. And so I would talk to the guys that sold furniture and say, why why do people buy your furniture? What is it that sells your furniture to them? What is it that they're looking for? And we would find a way to specifically tailor the message to them to sell the product to them. And that was one of the things that made me somewhat successful at doing that, was I spent a lot of time working on not just understanding my product, but how to market that product to people in a way that they could understand. Well, we're going to see how Paul today was a master at that. We see that not just in his sermons that he gives in the book of Acts, but even in his epistles, the way that he wrote his epistles, you could tell he understood the people that he was writing to. You look at his masterful thesis in Romans and the gospel. He understood his audience when you look at Galatians and what they were struggling with or even the Corinthians. We looked at first and second Corinthians a while back. And we saw how Paul, you know, in approaching and understanding the Corinthians and what they were struggling with and the way that he sort of called them out, but was also careful and gentle, he was a master at being able to do that. And we're gonna see that today. We're gonna to look at basically two passages, one this week and one next week, that are sort of together. It's almost like one event in many respects or one long extended event. And we're going to see how he tailors his message, if you will, to these two audiences. The first audience we're going to find today is in Thessalonica and then in Berea. And the audiences are primarily Jews and God-fearing Greeks. That's this week. Next week he's going to have an audience that's primarily made up of Stoic philosophers, Greek Stoic philosophers. And I've taught on this before when Paul teaches or preaches at the Areopagus. I've taught on from the perspective of whether or not Paul contextualized the gospel. And sometimes that refers to sort of changing or to being careful. Dustin's already alluded to that. Maybe a seeker-sensitive church might be just, you know, trying to change the message to reach that audience and um, sometimes they compromise the message to do that. That was one of the problems with the seeker-sensitive movement. Well, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't shy away from the gospel at all. He just communicates the gospel in a way that he knows they will be able to understand in a way that could impact them most deeply. And so we're going to see that today. So I'm going to break this down into just two sections today. The first is Paul and Silas sharing the gospel at Thessalonica. That's the first nine verses. And then Paul and Silas share the gospel at Berea, and that's going to be the rest of the passage. So let's go ahead and just... Break this down. After leaving Philippi, Paul and Silas head to a place called Thessalonica. Now, it's one of the most important commercial centers in Greece, probably one of the the two most important commercial centers in in Greece. It's the largest city in Macedonia. So, we've seen this with Paul, where he has a tendency to focus on these bigger cities. It would be much like if Paul were coming to Ohio for the first time, he would probably target Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati, maybe Dayton. That's where he would start. And there's good reason for that. Resources and populace. so people that are constantly moving in and out Here I am living in Delaware, Ohio But I often go to Columbus But I also go to Dayton I also go to Cincy I travel in and out of those cities And so it made sense for Paul to focus on these larger cities And so he does that with Thessalonica He's going into Macedonia And so he hits the, the, the largest city in Macedonia It was a port city along the Aegean Sea Which meant that it had all the major trades routes That came in and out So Paul knew that as people got saved in that city as others would come in on those trade routes, they would be able to interact and they could then take the gospel uh, with them as they got saved. It was also something called a free city. And a free city was rather interesting in that it was officially under Roman rule, but Rome kind of let it alone. They allowed for self-governance. They allowed them to have their their own rulers. And this was actually um, governed by an elected governor, which is somewhat uncommon because sometimes Rome would say, no. They put their guy there, but this they were allowed to have their own elections. Um, and to- on top of that, they were actually able to coin their own money as well. So they were a free city, which gave it a lot of freedom and flexibility, became a very powerful, very important city in the area. The population was mostly Greeks or Greco-Roman, but unlike Philippi, where there was almost no Jewish population, at least not a large one, Thessalonica actually had a sizable Jewish community, probably the largest in the area. Certainly the largest synagogue in all of Macedonia was right there in Thessalonica. Now the first thing you'll notice about Paul is that's exactly where he started. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17. Now when they had traveled through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so Paul does what he pretty much did every place he went. If there was a Jewish synagogue, he would go to the synagogue. When there wasn't a Jewish synagogue, he would look for Jews down by the river as we saw. So here, we're told it was Paul's custom. We saw him do that at Perga, we saw him do it at Iconium, we saw it throughout his pattern so far in Acts. We talked about his reasons for doing this. I don't know if it was last week or a little bit before that. Paul did this because it was his conviction that it was necessary to go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. We saw that with Jesus' ministry where we're told that Jesus went primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and outreach to Gentiles came primarily after his ascension. Not that he ignored Gentiles, but his focus was primarily on Hebrews. We see the same thing in the Old Testament where the Lord started with the Hebrews, didn't he? He established the nation of Israel, and through that establishment of the nation of Israel, his plan was to then ultimately rescue and save Gentiles as well. So God's plan has always always been to work through the Jews, and Gentiles would be grafted in. And Paul, even though he was commissioned by Christ to be the primary apostle to the Gentiles, he still went to the Jews first. And part of that is because of these convictions. That it begins with the house of Israel, and ultimately will then incorporate the Gentiles as part of that. I think another reason why Paul did that was also because it was what he was comfortable with. Meaning, Paul was a Jew among Jews, he understood the Jews, he also knew that he had an audience among the Jews. And he also knew that some of those Jews would get saved. And that would become the basis of the church, would it not? That makes sense. You know, that's, it's almost like low-lying fruit with a tree. You know, when you go apple picking, you don't start with pulling the apples from the top of the tree. You take what's hanging down first. And so that's kind of what Paul did. Now, we also know he was going to face a lot of opposition, but in almost every place he went, where he started with the Jews, in almost every place, some of them got saved. And they became the basis of the church. Now, Luke tells us that he spent three Sabbaths here, ultimately, before he gets the boot. And that's where we're going to spend most of our attention, is on what he does with these Jews in the synagogue. Now, his focus, as he's in the synagogue, we're told, is primarily on one overarching message, and it's that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Dustin's already alluded to that this morning. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 again. We're starting at verse 2 again. And according to Paul's custom, he went... To them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. It's about as clear as you can get as to what his message was. He was there reasoning with them, we're told. So Luke tells us not just what Paul did, but actually how Paul did it. And I want that to be somewhat the focus of our time this morning. What Paul did, we're told, is he reasoned with them. The word there implies this persuasive speech or a debate. So we find that Paul was here trying to convince them. You might say he was arguing with them, but that has a negative connotation here. But it's not always a negative thing. The idea of arguing or debate is to try to persuade somebody, and that's the word that Luke uses here. He was working at it; he wasn't just, ah, "Here's the message, walk away." He was doing the best he could to persuade them to accept that Jesus was exactly who he was. It's a word that Paul uses, or I'm sorry, Luke uses often regarding Paul's activity. I'll just rip through the verses; I won't read them for you. But in Acts chapter 18, verse four, verses 18 or chapter 18, verse 19. Acts chapter nineteen verses eight and nine, chapter twenty four verse twenty five, in all of these passages I've just mentioned, Luke describes Paul doing this, using the same words that he was reasoning with them, arguing with them, persuading them, trying to convince them. That was Paul's pattern. He wasn't just comfortable, I'll say, just sort of giving the announcement and walking away. He spent his time debating, working with these folks, trying to convince them from the scriptures. That Jesus was who he said he was. Now in the first century synagogue, this teaching time wasn't kind of what we do here, where I do 99.9% of the talking. It was a little bit more interactive. People could ask questions. And so that's exactly what Paul was doing. Debating with them. Talking with them. Allowing them to propose questions. Answering those questions. Now I want you to notice how he went about doing this. He used the scriptures. Notice it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The end of verse 2. From the scriptures. The Bible was his primary source when he came to talking with the Hebrews, with the Jews here. Luke says he was explaining and giving evidence. Now this would be from the scriptures. That the Christ had to suffer and had to rise again from the dead. Now we can imagine how he would do that. The word that Luke uses here for explaining means to open something up. It means to clarify it. It means to give evidence for it. It means to explain the meaning of it. I think about when Ezra opened up the law in front of the Jews after the Jews hadn't seen the Old Testament law in probably generations. And Ezra, it says, opened it up and he read it to them and he sent elders from Israel throughout the body and it says that they were explaining to them the meaning. That's why we preach the way we do. I'm explaining to you the meaning of these words, the meaning of the text here, and that's the way that Luke describes Paul doing this. He was opening up the scriptures to them, taking them to passages that referenced, likely the Messiah, but probably any texts that led to that, and then he was explaining it to them, helping them to understand it. And we can see why. There's much in the Old Testament. The passages, they don't necessarily come right out and say, Hey, by the way, in 1st century AD, this man will be born named Jesus to Mary and Joseph, and he's ultimately going to be your king. No, there was imagery used. And in hindsight... You begin to see how those pieces fell into place. What did it mean for, for the Lord to call Abraham and say that all the nations would be blessed in Abraham? Paul would be able to open up and say, see, this is how. And he's able to explain that to them. But this is exactly what he was doing here now. He's using the scriptures to do that. So that they might be able to understand the very book that God had placed into their hand that described to them about their Messiah. The phrase giving evidence here comes from a word that means to set before as in, you're sort of placing it before somebody. And so what Paul is doing is he's opening up the scriptures to them, and then he's placing before them the evidence that demonstrates that what's written is what's true. Likely what he's probably doing is talking about, hey, here's what it says about the suffering Messiah. See what Isaiah says? Let me tell you about Jesus and what happened in Jerusalem. He was arrested. He was tried. He was nailed to a cross. Oh, look at how some of the very things described. The words that are given here actually came out of Jesus' mouth while he was on the cross. He's laying that evidence in front of them so that they can make the connection. So what we have is Paul opening up the Word of God, explaining different passages related to the Messiah. He's demonstrating how they reveal what's supposed to happen and then he's taking the evidence of Christ and placing it alongside that and saying, see... Demonstrating the reliability of the Word of God in front of them. That was his tool that he used. Now, throughout these discussions, Paul was revealing how each one of these passages were fulfilled in Jesus. Notice how Luke sort of ends this small section here. Paul says this, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, present tense, He's the Christ. He's the one that the Scriptures promised. Now, it makes sense that he would do that, because it was something they understood. Tremendous amount of respect for the scriptures. They just needed to know how to understand it. We're going to see next week as he talks with the Greek Stoic philosophers. He doesn't avoid the scriptures. He summarizes the scriptures, uses biblical principles, but he even quotes some of their own philosophers. Now, it doesn't mean he substituted the philosophers for the word, because again, you'll see next week that he summarizes within the scriptures. And I've learned that there are times where I could quote scripture to some, but there's other times where I've found that summarizing the biblical principles works as well. And Paul does that sometimes in his preaching. Sometimes quoting directly the scriptures, sometimes simply providing a summary of what we see in the scriptures. And we're going to see him do that next week as well. So what's the response? Well, the response is found in verses 4 through 9. Let's look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of Greek, or I'm sorry, god-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So some were persuaded. That was the response. It says that these joined Paul and Silas, which likely means that they continued to meet with him, meet with them outside of the synagogue. It's what amounted to the beginning of the church they possibly met in Jason's house, according to the rest of the text. This group was made up of a small number of Jews, but also a large number of God-fearing Gentiles. God-fearing Gentiles were basically converts. They were Greek-speaking individuals who somewhat became Jews in some respects. It doesn't mean they converted fully to, to Judaism, but rather were comfortable in the synagogues, believed in Yahweh, they feared God. That was a euphemism for knowing the Lord. And so these individuals, small number of Jews, large number of God fearing Gentiles, started to follow Paul. It means they accepted the gospel. But it also says that there were a number of leading women. I love this because the phrase actually is more literally this and not a few prominent women. I was studying a passage last night where we see the same type of thing. Luke has a tendency to do that sometimes. Instead of simply saying, there were a ton of them, he'd say, it wasn't so small. It's Luke's way of sort of just being colorful in the way that he's talked. But basically, the best way to translate this is there were quite a few. So quite a few of these prominent women. Now, what's striking about this is that in the Greco-Roman culture, women... We're given a high level of status. In fact, it was a very patriarchal society. And much like I'm thinking, you know, I love Little House on the Prairie, and I know my wife teases me about that, but the time period that that was supposed to take place, women didn't have the right to vote yet. In fact, oftentimes in different different episodes, you'll hear comments made about a woman's... Purpose is to be in the house, cooking and cleaning, and the guys don't do that. They're out working in the field, you know? Well, the Greco-woman culture was a very patriarchal, man-centered culture and society. And so women didn't generally enjoy the same rights as men. However, there is some evidence that there were women who served in very high roles in culture and society and even in politics. There was a Greek philosopher that actually made reference to women serving in political roles throughout Greece, including women in a number of major cities that actually ran governments. And there's actually some positive comments about how some of these did it with excellence. And so there were women who sort of stepped outside the typical expected role and were very prominent, especially the bigger cities much like Thessalonica. And that's what we see here. There were some fairly prominent women, a fair number of them here, according to Luke, who actually began? Who accepted what Paul said and joined Paul and the other Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and became part of the church. They believed ultimately in the gospel. Luke uses a very similar phrase about some of these people in verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. He says that about Berea. We'll get down to there in a little bit. Chapter 13, verse 50, we saw something very similar. Verse 50 of chapter 13, I think he uses the same phrase if I remember. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a, per, a persecution against Paul. In that case, it was the opposite, where the women didn't believe. But again, we saw this, these prominent women. And so, we see the response here, at least the first response, is that some believed, some were persuaded by Paul as a result of his ministry at the synagogue. and include some Jews, a large number of Gentiles and then some very important prominent people in the city and we actually see that a number of places in, in Acts where God saw fit to save very prominent people sometimes people with of wealth sometimes people with homes that the church could meet in God always had a way of providing for his church and through that sometimes was by providing financial means and other things by some very prominent people getting saved and we kind of see that here as well, In fact, when, again, another one of the passages that will be coming up here, um, we see that when the riot in Ephesus starts, there's a very prominent politician, is the one who warns Paul about not going back into the theater because he's likely to be killed. And it happened to be a very prominent um, official in the city. And we see that Paul had a tendency sometimes to know some of these people. God was very favorable to him in allowing him to come across some of these folks. In fact, at one point we're told by Paul that many in the Praetorian Guard, the very elite of the elite Roman soldiers, were saved through Paul's ministry. And so we do see that occasionally. And so that's what happens here with this. Now, as you might come to expect, not everybody's going to like Paul's message. Not everybody's going to accept it. And so we see that next. Look at verses 5 through 9. It says, But... The Jews, and he's talking here about the rest of the Jews, because some of them obviously got saved, it says, but the rest of the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and and they set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, that's likely where the church was meeting, they were seeking to bring them out to the people, when they did not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, They began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason was welcomed among them. And they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So once again, we see the Jews become jealous. We see that in Acts chapter 13, same thing happens. The Jews become jealous when they see so many of their own people coming to Christ and they see the the Gentiles coming to Christ. It infuriates some of these Jews. The word that Luke uses here doesn't just imply jealousy, but a zealousness to that jealousy. It goes beyond just simply being a little bit jealous. It moves them to action. They were fired up they go to great lengths we're told here to shut down the spread of the gospel notice it says that they gathered some wicked men from the marketplace this is like you know this this isn't the cream of the crop guys they went to the marketplace to specifically find criminals interesting why they would do that probably because they wouldn't find any upstanding Jews to do it so they go find the riffraff I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that how do they know them but anyway they go and they find them And they start basically a riot. Does that kind of sound familiar? I mean, think about our world, folks, with much of what we've seen. Downtowns burning by people because they just, well, for whatever reason. But that's what they do here. They set the city on fire, so to speak. They couldn't just take their concerns to officials. No, they make a mess. Again, sound kind of familiar? Get my point across through violence and tearing down the city. Well, that's kind of what they basically do here. They they begin to start a riot. They apparently knew the Christians were meeting at Jason's house, so they go there and they're looking for Paul and Silas. They don't find them, so they do the next best thing. Grab the guys they can find, the owner of the house, the rest of the brethren that are there. They drag them out before the city authorities and then they accuse them of two things. The first thing they accuse them of is stirring up trouble all over the world. I love that. These guys are look at what they've done the rest of the world and they brought this stuff here. It says they're stirring up trouble. Well, really what they meant was that hordes of Jews and Gentiles were converting to Christianity and they weren't happy about it. Look at Acts chapter 24, verse 5. I think that's the passage. Acts 24, verse 5. something very similar where they're standing before Felix when Paul is being tried for we found this man Paul a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes in other words we don't like the fact that Paul's leading Jews and Greeks to Christ he's stirring this up all over the world That's a great testimony, isn't it? This is one man. Well, one man and some of his disciples who is stirring up the world and the secular world is admitting to it. So the first thing they do is they accuse him of causing trouble all over the world. That's a distortion. He wasn't causing trouble. He was leading people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The one that they've been waiting for. The second thing they do is they accuse him of violating the decrees of Caesar. Now this one's a little trickier. Because we know that Paul and Silas didn't run around telling people to disobey the law. In fact, Paul does quite the opposite. He says to submit to civil authorities. He says that they're for our protection. Tells slaves to honor their masters. So we know Paul wasn't running around saying, Violate the law! What was happening, though, was Paul did say there's another king. You notice that's really ultimately in the text... There's another king, Jesus, and in Roman law, saying anything to disparage the current emperor who was considered the king, or if you even suggested that another king would come and replace him, was a violation of the law, it was considered treason. And so from that respect here, they were sort of taking and twisting what Paul was saying. Paul clearly wasn't saying anything disparaging about the emperor, wasn't saying Jesus Christ is going to come and kick that guy off his throne and... But they would twist that to their advantage. It's almost like taking a partial truth and twisting it. Do we see that today? Of course. Christians are constantly maligned where they take things that we say and twist them and turn them. So we see a similar pattern here with what's going on with these who reject him. The Jewish leaders are upset, they're jealous, they whip up the crowds, just like they condemned Jesus. Sort of something similar here. Look at verses 8 and 9. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, in other words, taking money, it's a deposit, it might have been to get him out of jail. And they finally released him and let him go. So the first thing we see here is as Paul is dealing with the Jews at Thessalonica as he's in the synagogue. He uses the scriptures to reason with them. He explains the text to them. He's letting God do the talking in many respects and simply explaining to them that Jesus is their Messiah. Let's see what he does as he goes to Berea, because that's where he heads next. Verses 10 through 15. Let's look at verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they also went into the synagogue of the Jews. So as a, result against the th- or the, as a result of the threat against Paul and Silas, the church decides it's too dangerous for him to stay there. So they send him away under the cover of night, about 40 miles away, and they head to a place called Berea. There's no harm, no foul in that. We have a tendency sometimes to think, shouldn't run away. Paul did what was right in his own. He wants to stay alive, obviously. The brethren want him to stay alive. So sort to of protect him, they send him away. As we might expect, once again he begins in the synagogue, the same way he does almost everywhere else. And it also is where he begins to persuade the Jews using the Scriptures. Look at verses 11 through 12. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. It says there were many of them who believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And so Paul does the same thing. He uses the scriptures to reason with them. But this group is a little bit different than most of the Jews back at Thessalonica. Now, we know that some did get saved. Some took Paul seriously because it says some Jews got saved. A lot of the Greek fearing, or God fearing Greeks did, and some of the prominent women. But Luke takes an extra step here and he says, but most of the Jews here appear to be much more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. And that means they were more open-minded, they were more willing to listen and to examine the scriptures with Paul. Luke describes this perfectly and ultimately reveals three things that made these Jews more open-minded or more noble than their counterparts in Thessalonica. The first thing he does, or the first thing he describes is that they were eager to learn. Notice it says here that they actually um, received the word. Now the word there, probably in your Bible, doesn't have it capitalized for good reason. It just means what Paul was saying. But that included the word because they were in the scriptures. But it says that they were more willing to receive Paul's word. They were open to learning. They were eager to learn, we're told. They were willing to discuss it. Second thing we're told that they did was they examined the scriptures. They didn't just take Paul's word for it. They invested their time and their energies in the scriptures themselves. Notice it says they examined the scriptures, which refers to studying something carefully and with thought. That's something that's often lacking within our church. You know, our churches are filled with pastors like myself that get up every Sunday morning—every Sunday morning, money. That's true. Um, every Sunday morning, and preach something. And so oftentimes people sit there, and they listen, and they take his word for it. And then if you ask them why they believe something, well, my pastor says, or so-and-so says, or I read this book recently that says this, but spend almost zero time actually examining the scriptures to see if the bozo up front, the clown up front, It's actually making sense, but also speaking truthfully. That's another reason why we choose here to do expository teaching. I'm going to be real frank and honest with you. I don't know if you ever go and test what I say. But at least for our time here, you can see the text and go, I don't know if I trust Mike on this. It's not what it says. And it's because we believe that it's important that you examine with the scriptures what's being taught. And so that's what made these Bereans nobler than their counterparts in Thessalonica. They weren't willing to take Paul simply at his word. They were going to examine the scriptures themselves to see if what Paul was saying lined up with the scriptures. Since says that they actually did that daily. They invested some time in it. Finally, the third thing is that they used what they discovered in the word to then determine if what Paul claimed was true or not. Notice that that's pretty much what the text says. They were more noble-minded than the Jews, verse 11, in Thessalonica. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. Why? To see whether these things, the things Paul taught, were so. And that's the most important thing you can do as believers, is examine what you're being taught. Make sure that what you're being fed. Make sure that what you're reading. Make sure that what you're listening to. We, we think about this with the music. When we choose music, we're very careful. We want to make sure that it's meaningful and significant. And we, obviously we play some songs that are not theologically deep. And that's okay, as long as they're not opposing the scriptures. But there are some songs that I've found that I love the song, meaning I love the music behind it, but I look at the words and I go, I'm not so sure... So that doesn't make the playlist. It's amazing how much theology our church is, not our church here, but the church in general is taught through song, much of which is not correct or wrong. But that's the way our generation is taught. They spend far less time in the scriptures than they do reading other books, listening to Christian radio, listening to Christian songs, and that's how they form and shape what they believe, which is probably why less than 30 or 40% believe in the Holy Spirit. That's why so many of them now are caving to all kinds of things that the Bible condemns. Because they're not examining the scriptures for themselves. They're getting fed all kinds of stuff that they just accept. And so these Bereans were noble-minded examining what Paul said the result is found in verse 12 therefore many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men so the difference between the Thessalonians and the Bereans is that many more Jews in Berea accepted what Paul was sharing with them why? because they took the time to investigate the scriptures it wasn't enough though for these Jews up in Thessalonica the story wouldn't be complete without some controversy look at verse 13 but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds so it wasn't enough for the Thessalonian Jews that Paul and Silas left their city and left them alone when they caught wind that Paul and Silas were teaching down in Berea they found it necessary to hunt them down to run them out of Berea as well in fact they used the same tactics they did in Thessalonica it says they agitated and stirred up the crowds we saw this in Acts 14 as well when the Jews from Antioch and Iconium actually chased Paul down in Lystra to get him out of that city as well it's a bit ironic about that as Paul was guilty of that himself remember what happened when Paul when all the Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem what did Paul do? I'm going to go track them down all those other cities. It's a bit ironic now that Paul is being chased down by others, trying to kick him out of other cities. I think I've mentioned before, there's a fairly prominent um, anti-Christian group called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. It was started out of Madison, Wisconsin. Very liberal university. My brother actually graduated from there. Um... But these guys, it isn't enough to just simply kick this stuff off their campus, which is how it ultimately started. There were some college guys, and they wanted, they didn't want Christianity on their campus in Madison. So they founded this group, Freedom from Religion Foundation, and it started there. But now they go all over the nation. They've been down at the Creation Museum protesting. They've been at the Ark Encounter protesting. They file lawsuits against other schools in other cities. They've even gone to courthouses and tried to get the Ten Commandments kicked off the the you know the the wall and the lawn out front. It has nothing to do with them. Again, they're from Madison, Wisconsin, but it's not enough that they just kick you out of their town, they're going to chase you down to other cities and other places because that's the way that it works when you hate something. And so these Jews hated what Paul was preaching so much that they tracked him down to other places to kick him out there as well. Well, look at verses 14 and 15. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there, Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And then they left. And so basically what you find is that, again, because of the danger, Paul likely being targeted, his brethren, the church, decides it might be safer for him to leave the city and go off to the next city and preach the gospel there, so they send him off basically to Athens. And so we see a very similar thing happen in both cities. But again, the primary thing we see here is what I want to focus on is what Paul did and how he did it. So there's three takeaways that I, uh, you may have more, but I'm going to look at three that came to mind with me. The first one is this. The first takeaway is that Paul knew and understood his audience. And this shaped or impacted how he taught. As I mentioned, these particular audiences in both cities were primarily Jewish audiences and those who understood the Jewish scriptures, the Greek God-fearing individuals. So in this case, his audience as it was Paul specifically focused on the theme of Jesus the Messiah and Jesus the King. If you look at verse 3 again, it's he was preaching about Jesus being the Messiah. You look at verse 7, and there is this idea that there was another king, King Jesus, which means Paul had spent time talking about Jesus ultimately being king. And so he focused on this theme or these concepts that were familiar to the Jews. It's different than what he focuses on when he actually preaches in Athens and at the Areopagus because his audience there is these Greek philosophers. And so while he doesn't avoid the gospel, he still preaches the gospel to them, he does it in a different way. But he takes advantage of the Jews in their acceptance of the scriptures and the concepts and things that would have been important to them. I think it's a good lesson for us. We have a much better chance of winning people to Christ if we understand them and communicate the gospel in a way that's relatable to them. Let me give you a couple of examples here. I've been sharing with you my, my prayers that God would use me more as, not necessarily make me an evangelist. I've never been a, a evangelist in gifting, but I believe that we're all called to be witnesses. God does raise up some with the gift of evangelism. I know guys, in fact, I was talking to one the other night who um, was having a meeting with somebody he met at work and he was specifically um, trying to find a way to move the conversation from what they had talked about when he met him at work to the gospel and how he was going to do that because that's his heart and that's the way the Lord uses him. Um, I don't think there's a week that goes by that he doesn't share the gospel with somebody and, and he's seen people come to Christ. Um God's never necessarily used me that way. I'm, you know, He gifts different people in different ways, and my gifts have always been more related specifically with serving the internal needs of the church through teaching and instruction in the Word. But that doesn't mean that I don't get opportunity to share the gospel. But I generally have to pray for those opportunities and make a special effort to do that because it's not something that's natural or just. Some of these guys, it's like, oh, God just dropped this guy in my in my my lap, you know. Um, and so as we think about that, I, I have three examples real brief here. I mentioned um, about this young man, or older man, um, named RJ. It stands for Ratchet Jaw. I don't get it. But Amy and I met him out front of um, WITS quite a few weeks ago. And he brought up specific things related to um, what was going on in our world, and specifically things related to the prophet Nostradamus. And how Nostradamus had predicted certain things regarding the end times. And some of those things do sound similar to what you find in the scriptures. And so that was the opening. And so as I talked with him, we kind of focused on that to some degree because he was interested in that. And that led to the point where I was actually able to share the gospel with him very specifically and even gave us an opportunity to pray with him, right? that Not to receive Christ because he wasn't ready for that. But we were able to pray right there, on the sidewalk in front of wits, where I encouraged him to consider those things. So as I thought about how do I present the gospel to this young man, I tried to take advantage of something he was interested in. But I also talked about the scriptures, because it was a natural thing to do as well. I I was able to quote some scripture to him. Another individual, Sebastian, I think I asked you last week, or a week or two ago, to pray for a young man. His name was Sebastian. I had dropped off my edger to get repaired, do some welding on it he was somebody I met through his mom in the neighborhood and um, so I was praying about a way that I might be able to share the gospel with him well, he brought up the fact that his parents had gone to a Grace Brethren church but then he also brought up this idea that he wasn't sure if he was an atheist or an agnostic, he wasn't really sure, but one thing that struck him was that as he looked around creation he said, I don't know if I could accept that this all just came about by chance that was my opening I began to say, well, yeah, let's talk about that. And so I was able to talk to him about that to where I actually then got an opportunity to share the gospel with him in black and white. He wasn't ready to receive the gospel at that point. There were a number of times where I said, look, if this is making you uncomfortable, just say so. And he said, yes, it's making me uncomfortable. But he continued to talk. And so the conversation continued. So I focused primarily on using creation. And so I was able to talk about Psalm 19 with him a little bit and say, God did this deliberately. He's trying to tell you that you were created to be in a relationship with him and how that led to a discussion about Christ. I've got a young man at work that I've been praying for, very interested in politics, and he brought up the craziness and the weird thinking, the irrational thought that's going on. And it made me think, Paul addresses that in Romans. And so I was able to talk to him and say, you know the Bible addresses that asked him if he was familiar with it. He's like, well, I was raised Methodist, but I really don't know much about the Bible. I said, well, let me tell you about Paul. Paul wrote this great treatise on the gospel, but he talks about this very thing, and I was able to quote to him from Romans chapter 1. He was willing to listen to the point where I even said, we should go out and talk sometime, and we can maybe talk about some spiritual things, and he said, yes. So I give those examples of this. Paul knew his audience and understood how to communicate to them, and we have to as well. So the first takeaway is that we just need to learn how to do that. We need to be very careful. We should listen to people. It shouldn't just be about quoting John 3.16 to them and beating them over the head. And it's going to require some thought on our behalf. And so for each one of you sitting there, as you think about your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your family, if you struggle with sharing the gospel, maybe it would help to think through, you know, what do I hear from them sometimes? Where are their interests? And is there anything there that I can use to bridge the gap? That I might be able to move that conversation, maybe answer some of their questions from a biblical perspective that might open the door or plant some seeds. We have to be very creative, but we ought to be thinking through that. And for me, that's made it easier, if you will. Second takeaway is this Did you notice how Paul relied upon the scriptures when sharing the gospel? I think that's critical, folks. I can say an awful lot. But that's not necessarily going to convince people. Jesus told his disciples, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That's John chapter 15, verse 3. He then prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The author of Hebrews wrote, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit for both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. In other words, what he's saying is use the word. It's like a sword. It'll cut through anything. David wrote in Psalm 19 that the word of God has the power to restore the soul, to give wisdom, to rejoice the heart, to enlighten the eyes, to warn and to keep us from sin. God has given us this amazing tool and weapon to use and what's nice about that is it comes with this special thing called the Holy Spirit that can use that to convict the world of sin and their need for a Savior. We ought to be using it. It's hard to use it if we don't know it, folks. And I'm not saying just beat them over the head with a Bible verse. Paul, as we're going to see next week, summarized the scriptures gave the concepts laid out in the scriptures and as I mentioned with some of these examples I've shared with you I've been able to do that sometimes quoting scripture directly but sometimes just summarizing the principles and then have them say oh I didn't know the Bible taught that or I didn't know that was in the Bible there's nothing more powerful than the word of God when sharing the gospel And it's actually true whether they believe the Bible or not, folks. I've had opportunity in the past to share with people that don't believe in the Bible, but then when I share with them concepts or principles in the Bible, I find that, oh, they agree with that principle. Okay, use that to our advantage. The last takeaway, and I'll close with this, is how strategic Paul and Silas were. I shared with you that one of the reasons Paul and Silas went to the synagogue first, it was because they were familiar with it. It was familiar territory. They were both Jews. They understood that audience. so they started with the low-lying fruit. They took advantage of that. They were very strategic because even then, when they were kicked out or booted out of the synagogues, they didn't just go, Well, okay, it failed. I'm not much of an evangelist. What did they do? They went on and took advantage of the next available opportunity. Jesus actually told his disciples to do this. I'll read this to you. You can turn there with me if you want to or I'll just read it. But Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 verse 14 when he sent his disciples out into the world. He said something rather interesting. Chapter 10 verse 14. Let's do this. I'll start at verse 12. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Meaning if they reject what you teach. Verse 14, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off of your feet. Truly, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In other words, what Jesus says is, if they reject you, move on to the next place. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus said. Move on. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Go where they're willing to listen. I'm not suggesting we should write them off, and that's not what Jesus was doing here either. Paul kept going back to the synagogue, did he not? Maybe not the same synagogue in that exact city, but the next city he would go back. And... He was willing to continue to teach Jews. We see that in the scriptures when he went out of the synagogue and took the believers that came from that synagogue then and he would go to a house and plant the church. We find in other places that other Jews still came to Christ, which means Paul didn't abandon the Jews. Any of the Jews that were willing to talk, he continued to minister to. So what does that mean for us? I think we need to be strategic. Start with the low-lying fruit. Take advantage of those conversations about the people that are around us and with us that are willing to talk but when we find that maybe they reject it or if they don't come to Christ or if it gets a little more difficult don't be afraid to look for the next opportunity look for the the low-lying fruit if you will look for those that are willing to talk start praying about the next opportunity Lord it looks like maybe this opportunity has been shut down I just recently found out that a guy that I've been praying for at work who I was hoping to share the gospel with is now moving Met with him on Friday for a few minutes and chatted. He's going to be here probably till December. My heart was kind of kind of sank because I really felt this guy might really be open. May not get that opportunity. I asked him if he can go for lunch sometime before he leaves. He said certainly, but he even admitted, he's like, I'm going to miss talking to you, Mike. Maybe God will open up the door there, maybe not. But I'm already praying what comes after that. Is there somebody else, Lord, that you may... Put into my path that I can start praying for that maybe I can share the gospel with at some point. Strategic. I'll be real frank, folks. I don't think, folks, I don't think that many of us think about that on a regular basis. I think we're so tied up in our lives, surviving, and we get caught up in things like politics and coronavirus and LGBT issues and the abortion issue and all these other things, and we don't spend nearly enough time saying, wait a minute, I need to be strategic because I'm here primarily as a witness. I had somebody tell me the other day um, that the more they look around, the more motivated they are to now get there. And this is somebody who's been involved with politics heavily his whole life. But he said, you know, I'm realizing now that the most important thing is not my politics, but I may not have much time left on this earth to share the gospel. And he's now thinking through ways to be more specific and more targeted. We need to be. And I know that not everybody in here is a gifted evangelist. I'm not. But I'm being challenged lately to think, you know what? I want to be more specific. I want to be more um, targeted. I want to be more strategic And asking the Lord to give me opportunity to be able to at least be a witness. Maybe it will lead to some getting saved. Maybe it will plant a seed. I talked with my pastor, Pastor Krenz. He just turned 91 the other day, and I called him. He's no longer up at his church in northern, northern Wisconsin. He had to sell it because his wife's got Alzheimer's now. So here this guy is who's been evangelist his whole life. He's planted churches. He's pastor. He's an amazing man. He's now living in an apartment in Wausau, Wisconsin where he's taking care of his wife. Doesn't have opportunity to preach or teach anymore because he can't be out of the house a whole lot. But you know what? I asked him, I said, boy, how, how are you doing? And he's like, We've been sharing the gospel with people we eat with. That's his ministry. And he took it as, there's nothing disappointing about that, but he's being strategic. The very few minutes a day he has with interacting with other people outside of taking care of his wife, he's sharing the gospel. I think we need to do more of that. And I think we see that in Paul and Silas as they move from city, just took advantage of that next opportunity. Amen?